This is The Kicker, a podcast about journalism and media from the Columbia Journalism Review. I'm Pete Vernon. Just what's going on with white people? That's the question John Bewin wanted to answer in his 14-episode podcast series, Seeing White. Bewin is the audio program director at Duke Center for Documentary Studies and a longtime public radio reporter. In Seeing White, he dives deep into topics like white supremacy, white privilege, and the origins of whiteness in America. CJR's Meg Dalton spoke to Bewin about that and more in this week's episode. The rise of Trump is just one of the many things in the last few years that have turned a newly challenging, just what is up with you all, spotlight on white people and whiteness. Do I need to list them? From the many police shootings of unarmed black people to the massacre of nine black churchgoers by the white supremacist terrorist Dylan Roof, to cultural stuff like Oscars So White. Well, I'm here at the Academy Awards. otherwise known as the uh, White People's Choice Awards. And what feels like a relentless drip, drip, month by month. You know, I've been interested in race uh, uh, in in my work for a long time, and sort of personally and intellectually, and, and I did a uh, an anti-racism workshop, really, basically as a as a participant that I was nudged into by my by my employer. <laughs> Um, in toward the end of 2015, and it was that Racial Equity Institute anti-racism workshop that ended up becoming part of the series. I went back again and asked if I could record it, and that became one of the elements in the series. So all of that kind of came together to make me feel like, you know, in a way, and I think what I would say is that the insight was that there's a really large gap between the way most of us, and especially most of us white people in this country, the way we see ourselves and our and our history in this country and the reality of, you know, the way that race has functioned and the way that whiteness has functioned, that there's a pretty large gap there. And that seemed to me to present an opportunity to do a series of um, storytelling, a lot of it which would be grounded in history and just sort of telling a a different version of American history and pre-American history. For those people who haven't been able to listen to the podcast yet, um, how would you kind of describe the structure, format, the topics you cover, what can listeners expect? So basically, it, it is grounded pretty heavily in, in interviews with historians. The early episodes really kind of tell, tell a story of how, literally how race was invented and, uh, and refined so that we got this, you know, and goes back to a time in history before people had these notions of black and white and you know this this notion of race simply didn't exist until about 5 or 600 years ago and sort of how so we actually name names like who invented race and why um and uh and then how did that sort of get refined into these notions that we still live with today in the United States about what it means to be white to be black and then in later episodes we come at sort of different aspects of the, the way whiteness works uh, more in contemporary times. So we look at, for example, questions about violence and the idea that, you know, that, that, that black men are, are somehow 
an especially violent group of human beings. Well, okay, let's let's take a hard look at that, and it really kind of falls apart. And we look at things like uh, a kind of cultural take. What through through a photographer who takes photos of white people uh, and whiteness. What does it mean to look at whiteness in that way? Some of it's entertaining. Some of it's so those are some examples of the kind of things that the that the series does. It's a total of about eight hours, over fourteen episodes, so it's pretty extensive. The other thing that I would want to highlight is that in most of the episodes, I think twelve out of the fourteen, um, there's a documentary part uh, of each episode, and then there's also a conversation that I have with Chenjerai Kumanyika, who's a scholar, media scholar at Rutgers and a podcaster. He's now with the podcast Uncivil from Gimlet and a really, really brilliant and, and uh, engaging guy. And he's a friend of mine and he agreed to basically help me kind of unpack the stories that we tell and then also to kind of keep me honest as a white guy trying to look at whiteness. So usually coverage of race focuses on people of color. Why was it important to turn the lens around? Having done the series and spent close to a year immersed in researching and, and making that podcast series, I'm sort of embarrassed by the idea that, that you would look at race and that you, you, know, you're, you would point the camera or the microphone primarily at people of color to look at race in America. And I think you know, our, the premise of that is, is sort of like, quote unquote, the race problem is one that involves and you know primarily people of color so you're looking at what's going on with black people what's going on with latinos it's it's more a sort of you know how can uh people of color overcome the adversity and the oppression that they that they've dealt with and that are that they're still dealing with or if it's a more uh, conservative, or some would say racist um, perspective, the question is, you know, how can these people fix themselves and stop doing so poorly, right? So, so, but either way, you're sort of looking at people of color, and, and actually it just becomes clear to me that, um, that, that the story of race is a story of white racism. So why don't we look at white people and what's going on? Where did, the, where did this idea of white superiority come from and how is it functioning how has it functioned for 400 years on this continent and how is it functioning today once I kind of had that insight and decided to pursue that now it strikes me as really obvious and I'm sure a lot of if there are a lot, you know a lot of people of color listening to this would be saying duh you know um, but but I think yeah for a lot of white people it's sort of like an aha moment at some point that you realize oh race is a white people problem no kidding so why do you think a podcast is the ideal medium for having this kind of conversation? Well, I don't know if it's the ideal medium for having this kind of conversation. I, I do. I just, for me, it was what I could do, right? It's the medium that I happen to be working in. And I will say that, um, you know, I just feel enormously liberated in having uh, joined the stampede into podcasting as somebody who worked in public radio for many years the show's gotten a lot of buzz and I've heard some people referring to it as, you know, required listening. Why do you think it did strike a chord with people the way that it did? Yeah, well, certainly the the timing is part of that. Um, you know, the rise of Trump and then the election of Trump 
uh, have really, I think, created, a, a, along with these other things that I mentioned, right, that have been coming up in particular over the last few years. Um, so that I, th- you know, I think that, that it's been a period in which it's just gotten harder and harder to be in denial that, that race is a deep, deep problem in this country that is still very much with us. You know, I think uh, I was never for one second a, um, you know, a, one of the people talking about a post-racial America just because uh, Barack Obama was elected. But I do think that, that, that I would say that I was guilty along with a lot of other people of, of underestimating the depths uh, of, of structural racism in the country. And, uh, and, and actually, if anything, you know, the hundreds of years of white supremacist, white supremacist thinking have really come roaring back strong in a real way. Um, so that, you know, yeah. So, and I think that a series that is basically saying, all right, let's go deep on this. Let's not just go talk to some people at the KKK rally. Let's go deep on really on how we got here and how this whole thing got constructed in the first place. Uh, and that there's a real hunger for that, for people who are hearing that the series exists that there's like oh dang i'm curious so and i think once people start listening and they really start learning stuff um and that's that's one thing that we've heard again and again too is just this kind of oh my gosh i didn't know Now on to the news of the week. I'm joined by my colleagues, Christy Chisholm. Hey, Christy. Hey, Pete. And John Elsop. John, thanks for being here. Thank you. Allegations of sexual assault against Alabama Senate candidate Roy Moore have dominated political conversation since the Washington Post broke the story last week. Moore, of course, is the right-wing former chief justice of the state Supreme Court who has made bigoted, homophobic comments in the past. He was backed by Steve Bannon in the Republican primary against establishment choice and Trump-supported Luther Strange. And Bannon's Breitbart, along with other pro-Trump outlets, initially challenged the Post's reporting. Yeah, they uh, sent two reporters initially and then I believe a third reporter on Wednesday uh, down to Alabama, Breitbart, that is, um, with the explicit intention of writing not just pro-more stories, but anti-accuser stories. And so they were like going around knocking on the doors of, I think, victims, certainly members of alleged victims' families to try and and sort of dig up dirt that would discredit the Washington Post's reporting. And I think the general consensus around that has been that they've just reinforced the the quality of the Post's reporting. Right. The original Post story was pretty bulletproof. There was 30 sources. These women did not come to the Post. The Post went and sought them out. Yet some right-wing blogs, Gateway Pundit, among others, were reporting this lie that the Post had offered payment to women to accuse Roy Moore in some effort to take down this populist right-wing candidate. Yeah, it's not a new tactic either. It like, harkens back to, well, way before this really, but I'm thinking about the Anita Hill testimony against Clarence Thomas. You know, it's like as soon as anyone accuses anyone else of sexual harassment, the first thing that the defense does is try to discredit the accuser. And in this case, uh, going after the media is just way more in line with right-wing media strategy right now anyway, which is just to discredit the press as a whole. So they try to discredit the women in ways that they can, and then now they're going to try to discredit the news organization that's reporting on behalf of the women. I mean, 
it's not a new thing. It's still enraging and incredibly disappointing, but it's not new. Yeah, and that stance among some in the conservative and right-wing media spheres has changed slightly since another accuser came forward, and Republican leaders like Mitch McConnell said that Moore should drop out of the race, that he believed the women. Breitbart apparently is still sticking by Moore. Yeah. Well, what's been interesting about this is, I, you know, I must admit, I thought a couple of days ago that as damaging and clearly true as all of these uh, allegations are, it probably wouldn't have a huge impact on the race just because Moore crafted this niche for himself as a flamethrowing anti-establishment candidate. I mean, not even Trump backed him in the primary, but Bannon did, Breitbart did. I mean, this guy was, I thought, was pretty obviously going to do what he has subsequently done, which is mount this kind of impassioned anti-media defense. I thought that would work better than it has. Breitbart's sticking by him, but it's not an unquestioning sticking by. I mean, the, the reports have surfaced um, this week that Steve Bannon actually had to have a long, hard think about whether Moore was too unpalatable for them. Um, and uh, Sean Hannity on his show also said, I think he said, Moore had 24 hours to give a more convincing explanation or, or drop out of the race. Now, Hannity has uh, said things before. As we speak now, we're in the middle of that 24 hours. So as you listen to this, maybe check in to see if he's done a, a reverse ferret, as we would call this in the UK on this one. But, um, <laughs> reverse it's a real, it's a real expression. Um, but, uh, but no, I think it's interesting that even these, even the sort of wavering among these um, bastions of the anti-establishment right-wing press in the Moore case, I think tells a pretty instructive story about just how potent these allegations are, even if it doesn't lead to them abandoning him totally in the final count. Yeah, if you've lost Sean Hannity, you may have lost the fight. Speaking of Hannity's Fox News, we're often critical of some of the primetime Trump cheerleaders there, of the Fox and Friends propaganda morning show. But I think it's worth pointing out that there are real journalists there, and one of them, Shep Smith, deserves real praise for what he did on Tuesday. Even so, the accusation is predicated on the charge that Secretary Clinton approved the sale. She did not. A committee of nine evaluated the sale. The president approved the sale. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission and others had to offer permits, and none of the uranium was exported for use by the U.S. to Russia. That is Uranium One. Yeah, so Smith was uh, debunking this ridiculous conspiracy theory that Hillary Clinton was somehow trying to uh, somehow responsible for brokering this massive uranium sale to Russia, um, which is both clearly an attempt to derail the very legitimate concerns about the Trump administration and campaigns ties to Russia. um, And also at the same time, a continuation of this um, overtly anti-Clinton narrative that Fox and other parts of the right-wing media have uh, continued to perpetrate, um, even though it is now over a year since she lost the election and they would probably be better served talking about the uh, administration that won. Well, you can probably bet that any time the Trump administration starts sweating about anything, they're going to bring up Clinton, their first opportunity. So again, not terribly surprising. Yeah, it's nice to have a reality hour on Fox. And As we said, we're often critical of some of their uh, more bold name personalities, but 4 p.m. is a nice check-in with what's actually going on in the country. Well, it's also nice. I mean, it shows that there are great journalists working who come from, like, conservative outlets or who have a more conservative voice or whatever, that, like, journalism itself, everyone thinks of 
Fox as being kind of the the balance or something to like the left leaning New York Times or whatever, but it's not. Most of Fox is just a bunch of pundits who were given a platform. So to have Shep Smith actually out there doing reporting, it's like if you think that you know, the Times or the Post or whatever are left-leaning and you're looking for something that's more right-leaning, he's an actual journalist who you can look to who can kind of balance the scales a little bit. I wish we had more journalists like him on that side of the media sector rather than just a bunch of talking heads who are supporting conspiracy theories. Yep. So props to Shep Smith. Finally, we turn to the media's coverage of mass shootings. In the wake of the tragedy at First Baptist Church in Sutherland Springs, Texas, journalists descended on the town of 700 and last week, Dallas Morning News reporter Lauren Magahi penned an apology to the people of the town, writing, quote, it was an invasion. It was too much. That column sparked a discussion among journalists about the way we respond to these sort of events. And John, I know you've been doing some reporting on this. Yeah. So I was um, I mean, this is something I think we've we've seen. I mean, more or less every time one of these things happens, this swarm effect where the media floods into a place where there's been a mass tragedy and totally overwhelms the local community. Now, it happens every time, but it's particularly pronounced when it happens in a very small town. Sutherland Springs has a population of around 700. Uh, I think there was a very similar effect in Newtown, Connecticut, around the the Sandy Hook Elementary School shootings too. Um, And it struck me that while this sort of apology... Um, was useful, it didn't propose any actual concrete solution. So I thought it would be insightful um, to try and talk to some reporters who do this kind of work to try and see if they had any ideas for how we might avoid this swarm effect. So what do you get? So I think we ended up with sort of two types of suggestions, stuff that I think newsrooms and reporters could do pretty much straight away to make this coverage more respectful, remembering basic manners and decency. If someone says, I don't want to talk. I've just lost a relative. You say, well, here's my phone number on my business card, but you don't try and call them back three hours, four hours later until they eventually maybe talk to you. Um, I think newsrooms could do more also in the sort of first instance to take the pressure off the formula of the story that we always see in the wake of this type of event, sort of an 800 word piece with three quotes, including two from survivors and one from a bereaved relative. Instead of mandating reporters to go out and get exactly the same story every time, I think it would be better if newsrooms gave reporters more space to maybe go and not talk to people, but just hang back. Don't speak to people. Don't intrude, but just observe how a community deals with grief. Stories that have been done along those lines actually sometimes are way more powerful than stories where there's been this sort of forcible interaction on the journalist's part. Yeah, I think that basic training is like, I mean, this is something that newsrooms should be doing anyway, and really making sure that they do this before sending reporters out into the field should be a first priority for every newsroom, especially because reporters who are sent out to these scenes are often younger reporters, maybe less experienced. Sometimes they're proving themselves. They're trying to go and they're trying to get the quote and get the photo and whatever. And if they're not primed or trained in the right way to know how to deal sensitively in those situations, then it is going to cause this kind of uncomfortable swarm effect. So that's something that that they should absolutely be doing right away. Um, And I know the DART Center for Trauma also has some tip sheets on that on their site right now for some really easy ways that newsrooms can train staff on that. So, John, I know that you also found a lot of kind of larger, like bigger picture solutions in your research. Yeah. So, I mean, these are things I think that it would be foolish and naive to say are likely to happen anytime soon. And they're probably things that unfortunately will never happen. But I sort of thought they were worth including because it doesn't mean that we shouldn't have a conversation about them because I think they do have a certain logic. I mean, one option would be for some news outlets to just unilaterally decide to not go and cover these things on the ground. 
Uh, I think it would involve a degree of self-reflection that's maybe not totally realistic to expect always. But it would be basically saying, well, we can cover this a lot from our central newsroom using social media, using citizen journalists on the ground, using telephones. We don't necessarily need to go and overwhelm the community and be there physically. And I think that, you know, while that would rely on the goodwill of a news organization, we have seen news organizations be pretty reflective and self-critical around how they cover these things in the past with, with regards to naming shooters. And also, I know that you've really talked about, um, you talked to a lot of people about local news and how larger newsrooms are all kind of bemoaning, like, decline of local news and that this is an opportunity for them to really aid local news outlets in addition to kind of standing back and not being part of the swarm effect. Certainly, where there's an affiliate structure, um, that could work. I think news, uh, t- TV networks, maybe radio networks, are sometimes way too fast to relieve their reporters who are already on the ground working for a local affiliate in favor of flying in Lester Holt or Anderson Cooper, um, which I don't think they always need to do. I also think that, as you said, you know, newspapers could perhaps link out to commentary and, 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 and reporting that's being done on the ground by really good independent local newspapers. Yeah, this is a conversation we're going to continue having because, unfortunately, we can expect that this sort of event will happen again. And John's piece is up at CJR.org now. It's a great piece of solutions journalism with some suggestions that we can put into practice immediately and maybe some of those bigger ideas that we should think about going forward. That was our show. Thanks for kicking it with us. I want to thank John Bewin for hopping on the phone with Meg to talk earlier and as always, I want to thank my colleagues, Chris Chisholm and John Alsop. Thanks, guys, for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having us. You can check out all the content we've got up at our website at cjra.org. We appreciate you listening, and we'll see you next week.